The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to Pod Save the World. We have a packed show for you today. We got Julian Assange's arrest, mm. the FBI expelling Chinese scholars. Gail Patir of J Street will dial in from Israel to talk about the state of progressive political parties in Israel. Uh, we got Bernie's foreign policy vision, the Trump administration's potential pretext to attack Iran, upcoming elections, and then a conversation about Bo Bergdahl in Afghanistan with author Matt Farwell. Ben, a lot going on today. Yeah, wow. I know. Excited. Buckle up, worldos. <laughs> Buckle up, worldos. Uh, here we go. So I, I do think the lead story of last week is that uh, Ecuador has booted WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange out of its embassy in London after uh, allowing him to have asylum for seven years. Assange was arrested by British authorities. It's likely that he's going to be extradited to the U.S. to face charges that he worked with Chelsea Manning to crack a password on a DOD computer network. Um we all know what WikiLeaks is. They published millions of classified documents. Uh, we all, of course, remember them helpfully releasing the DNC and Podesta emails back in 2016. So, Ben, I can't remember if this happened when I was there or yeah. if I had left, but I know that you know the the Obama Department of Justice debated whether or not to indict Assange. Uh, what do you remember from that debate, and, and what did you make of of this decision uh, to put this indictment forward? Well. You know, the debate under us, uh, <laughs> I always feel like I, we have to explain how things worked in the distant past when right. the White House didn't tell the Department of Justice uh, what to pursue and what not to pursue. So, you know, I think DOJ just felt like they, under us, didn't have a determination to indict Assange and pursue his extradition. He obviously was facing legal trouble in, in European countries, um, which is what ended up causing him to flee <laughs> into mm-hmm. the um, arms of the Ecuadorian embassy for asylum. Um, you know, I will say that looking at the, um, you have to separate out what's interesting about this indictment is they indict him on the Manning piece of it. Um, mm-hmm. But there's like other crimes <laughs> that uh, I have to imagine um, prosecutors would be interested in, um, yeah. including the 2016 election and the, work with Russia to potentially hack into the DNC and other emails uh, and to release those and to, um, you know, interfere in that way in our election. So um, I guess the, 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 the first thing that was interesting is that, that they're focused on this 2010 mm-hmm. uh, collaboration with Manning. Um, I think there's this broader question of what is criminal conduct and what is just odious um, conduct. And, you know, there I think it's going to be an interesting question as to, um, y- you know, raises a lot of ethical questions about what is journalism and what isn't, mm-hmm. what is criminal and what isn't. Um, I will tell you where I am on the first of those questions, which is, this is not journalism. Um, and I feel really strongly about this. You know, the, some people kind of get on their high horse and say, well, we have to defend Assange because he, he, he's a transparency act, a, a, activist. No, Julian Assange is essentially been operating, at least in recent years, as an extension of Russian intelligence. 
Um, his motivation behind what he's doing is, is not transparency. Um, it's not transparency for transparency's sake. Uh, it's on behalf of a very specific agenda, which is the Russian government's agenda to interfere in our election, uh, to elect Donald Trump, and to sow division in our politics. And, you know, if you were a normal investigative journalist and Russia came to you with hacked information and said, here you go, um, put this in your newspaper, I think just about every U.S. news outlet would not do that. I don't know why it's any different if it's through the intermediary of Julian Assange. If he's still operating as a vessel for Russian stolen information, you know, why if it's Julian Assange and not some Russian guy who works for the FSB, is that journalism? Um, so on the first question, I, I really think it's a mistake to to put our chips onto Julian Assange as some kind of emblem of of, of you know, free speech and journalistic uh, integrity here. This is not a guy who's an investigative journalist. This is a guy who's thrown his lot in with the Russian government, which is a, a government that stands against the, the values of the free press. On the criminal question, I think the legal system is just going to have to run this course and see, you know, what the determination is um, as to whether or not his his hacking constituted criminal conduct. I'm not, I'm not really able to make that judgment. Yeah, I mean, so... Holder, when he's talked about this, Eric Holder, Obama's attorney general, when he's talked about this publicly since leaving government, basically said they were worried that if they indicted uh, Assange for publishing classified materials, that might mean that they would then have to uh, go after the New York Times or other news outlets that publish them. So th that that's sort of the background and the context. I mean, as you know, they're going after this specific collaboration with Chelsea Manning. Yeah who was in the military at the time and leaked a whole bunch of cables and other uh, U.S. government classified materials to Assange. Uh, they can add more charges in the future if they get him back over here. But the point, you know, it does seem like they've made this charge very specific because they're trying to make an argument that this was not normal journalism of like publishing information. This would be like uh, telling someone how to break into a vault yeah. where the classified documents are and then helping them. So it's a conspiracy to get this information. This w There was an, a similar example of this uh, in, I think, 2010 with James Rosen, who was yeah. a Fox News yeah. guy, yeah. who you know was sort of a bumbling idiot about his efforts to solicit classified information from an analyst in the State Department about North Korea and and uh, encouraged him to do all these silly cloak and dagger things to meet him to relay the information. And he got indicted as a conspirator, which was clearly a mistake and not something that was necessary in any way in, in this instance, nor should we be criminalizing journalism. Yeah. But that's the, that's, the, that's the key thing to understand is that uh, you know, it, it's the conspiracy to get more information that they're, they're hanging this indictment on. Well, and I guess the, here's, the, here's the core question. It's the hacking, right? So- you know, most of us would think if there's some dogged investigative journalist who is talking to government officials and those government officials um, maybe share secrets or if he's reporting in a war zone and learns sensitive things um, or he roots out, you know, corruption by pouring through the books and, you know, that that, that is investigative journalism. And even if it crosses over into secret spa spaces, um, you know, there's a value in that. Um, the question is whether breaking into your computer and stealing your personal information is journalism or not. Um, and look, we've had some cases where 
you know, they were hacking into people's voicemails, um, you know, celebrities. The Murdochs. Yeah, the Murdochs in the UK hacked into, and I think people were- Their news outlets. Yeah, so the Murdochs had some tabloid papers that hacked into uh, voicemails and then published it in their tabloids, and people were uncomfortable with that. I think that's a pretty fair line to set, right? Which is that, would you guys want the the New York Times um, or Fox News- to, to be able to hack into your email and report on it. I, I think that, that, that there should be an expectation uh, of some amount of privacy. Um, and for government secrecy, it's, it's obviously a different set of questions, but you know, similar line being crossed. So I, I do think it's valid uh, to suggest that there's a difference between kind of dogged interviewing, you know, document review, uh, et cetera, versus just somebody, you know, hacking into somebody's system and and releasing that because, you know, that can very quickly turn into not a transparency interest, but again, rather a, a punitive interest to, to hurt somebody or to, uh, to serve the agenda of a foreign government. If we are signaling, put it this way, if we are signaling that it, it is protected, it's okay to hack something as long as it's given to a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, that is just a massive blinking green light well, but, to but, Russia or China or anybody else. But isn't Manning being in jail for a long time? Doesn't isn't already a, not a signal that we're giving permission, right? I mean, they're they're saying that Assange, that Manning asked Assange to help him crack some other password that might have helped uh, Manning disguise her stealing of various classified materials. I don't know that they were successful, but don't you think it's punitive to have Manning in jail? Yeah, it is. Send a, send a message to you know people who signed a pledge not to release classified information. It is, and, and that's fairly clear cut. Like she was violating the terms of her service, essentially, yeah. um, uh, in, in the U.S. government. Um, I think what's so hard about this is WikiLeaks itself. What is WikiLeaks? Yeah. You know, if WikiLeaks was the New York Times, you know, as Eric Holder said, I think we would all be very uncomfortable with the idea that um, if the New York Times published something. Like they published the the hacked emails from John Podesta. I don't think anybody's suggesting that the editors of the New York Times should go to prison for that. Um, the question is, if you have some organization like this that is kind of in between, you know, it's 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 not a journalistic entity, it's not a newspaper, it's not a it's not even a you know, really a media outlet. It's just an organization that that trades on stolen material. Um, you know, how do you treat that? And I think we have to figure that out. And I don't, yeah. you know, I think that's a policy conversation and a legal conversation. I would argue that, again, if, if if you are creating an incentive structure where you're saying to any hacker out there that you will have the same kind of First Amendment type protections that journalists do, if you just feel like, you know, stealing other people's information or stealing the government's information um, or, you know, working in collaboration with a foreign adversary like Russia to do so, that you'll be protected you know, that, that will create huge problems because that will, again, essentially legalize, normalize the theft of information by, by anybody. Yeah, I can see the slippery slope argument being complicated in that direction. And I can also direction. see the yeah, other direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is going to be a tough one. So again, interestingly, Ecuador went on a full PR offensive against Assange. They accused him of braiding embassy guards. Well, he's like putting shit on the wall. They accused <laughs> yeah, him of yeah, smearing yeah. poop on the wall, so that's charming. Um, yeah. Most notably, President Moreno of Ecuador said that Assange had turned the embassy into a center for spying, and his team blames WikiLeaks for leaking damaging photos of Moreno and his family. I can't tell if I should buy these claims or if you're just obviously going to wage a PR campaign uh, against Assange in this instance of your Ecuador to sort of blunt criticism of your decision to turn him over to British authorities. 
I mean, I, I think that they're probably both true. Um, you know, Julian Assange is a, is an eccentric guy. Um, and, and he was already before he went into that embassy. And I can't imagine what somebody becomes like when they, they're living inside a contained space like that for, uh, for years. Um, and it certainly is the case that, you know, Assange traffics with some really shady characters, including Russian intelligence. Um, and so the idea that he might, it's perfectly in character for him that he would kind of weaponize those contacts and try to blackmail Ecuador and say, you know, I'll, 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 you know, use my context to, to inflict damage upon you if you don't protect me. I could see that. I, don't, I can obviously independently verify it. Um, it's also the case that they probably just wanted to add under this. What people need to remember is when Ecuador took him in, they had this anti-American uh, president and Rafael Correa, um, who was kind of part of the bloc with uh, Maduro and, and, and the Cubans and, and some other Latin American leftists. And so this was just a way for them to, to you know, stick it to the United States. Now we've got this other president who comes in. He didn't give Assange this protection. He inherited it. And he's probably just looking to get this off his plate, um, not so much as a reward to us, but can you imagine having to go to the fucking work at the embassy every day? And there's, no. this, there's this kind of nutcase. This is hacker skateboarding uh, hacker, through the halls. Hacker out of you. Russian intel guy skateboarding around and, yeah. and, and you know making contact with all kinds of uh, shady characters. You would want him out of your home as well. Yeah, I uh, I agree with that. This this whole thing is so complicated and so unsatisfying. Like I, I was thinking about it a lot over the weekend that. Obviously, if you sign a pledge not to release classified information, th- that y- y- you can't get around that. But I also constantly think about how overclassified everything was in government uh, and how when you're tried for these charges, the government gets to decide uh, just how bad the charges will be, right? Because the government yeah. determines if it's code word level, top secret, yeah. secret. And there's no independent review of whether that's ridiculous or not, or whether it's top secret information that you could also find in the newspaper. I can think of 15 examples of that happening. Uh, and then you get tried and you could get locked away for a very long time with no way to yeah. adjudicate this process. It's a, it's, I think you know, there should be some classification reform yes, from both sides. Look, the government overclassifies things. Um, I, I think that there are, the question of motivation matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my view of Julian Assange changed, you know, after the dump of all the cables, right? So thousands and thousands of diplomatic cables that, um, that Chelsea Manning le- gave to Manning, the Ma- Manning then leaked, uh, working with the Times and, and Der Spiegel and The Guardian, but also just releasing some of this on, on their own. You know, I'll never forget uh, being in uh, well, I won't name the, a foreign country and talking to a U.S. diplomat uh, who was complaining about this. And I said, well, give me an example of why. And he said he had been in Canada um, at the time of the, the dump of the cables. Let's get the context because we worked with the New York Times, a bunch of news outlets to redact names to redact in cables names. before they were published. Assange saw that happening, got pissed off, and he said, fuck it, I'm just dumping them I'm all dumping unredacted them all on the internet. That's right. And... He said, look, there was this uh, Canadian, uh, there's this person who worked with the embassy, our embassy, the U.S. Embassy in Canada, who was from the indigenous population there and kind of used to come in and talk about, here are the troublemakers who are engaged in drug trafficking or what have you, criminality on, uh, you know, in our community. And when this guy's name was published in one of these cables, the diplomat I was talking to said that he just disappeared. And he said, like, I don't know what happened to that guy. I don't know if he had to flee. I don't know if he was killed. I don't know, you know. Yeah. And so then I started to ask around, and this was happening around the world because essentially 
if you're in, you know, some author- let's say you're in Uzbekistan, like an authoritarian country, and you're meeting with civil society, you're the embassy, and then suddenly the cable is leaked that lists all the civil society activists who came into the embassy to report corruption by the government, those people's lives are literally at risk. And I know people got tired of hearing this talking point of like, this is putting people's lives at risk. But put aside even the American personnel, right? If you care about human rights, isn't it not a bad thing if we are giving the blueprints to every authoritarian government in the world as to which civil society activists are reporting which information in that country Mm -hmm. and so that you can then go roll them up? Uh, And so a responsible news organization like the New York Times would review these cables and would separate out how to convey the news in them from information that would endanger people's lives. And WikiLeaks just didn't do that. And, and, And so for me, their motivation wasn't, again, transparency. Their motivation was to just embarrass the United States and the United States government. And even, by the way, if you're not a big fan of the U.S. foreign policy of the United States government, that's just a different motivation than a, a journalist wanting to shine a light on on abuse or corruption. And it's something that we have to reckon with that it, it, it endangers people's lives. And of course, Russia likes that kind of thing because mm. Russia, as much as anybody else, wants the blueprints uh, for you know how civil society is operating around the world and, and how democratic activists are operating around the world. And so to me, um, this is why it's so important to say there's a difference between a news outlet that's going to do the actual work of, of separating out the news from what can be harmful and something like WikiLeaks, where this guy just wants to be the center of attention and frankly probably allowed his organization to be taken over in a way by Russia to service Russia's very anti-democratic ends. Yeah, I, I, I think it's notable that that the document dump of all the cables that Assange did, I think ultimately lost him a lot of defenders yeah. who were, you know, I think like people like Edward Snowden to criticize that decision. So yeah. it was, yeah. it was. It Even was, Snowden, uh, you know, who I've, I've had my beef with, you know, tried to uh, apply some tests to the information that was right. going to get out. So, so as to protect uh, individual lives. I right. mean, this is not. Yeah, if you're if it's you're an Afghan game. guy, if, if yeah. you're an Afghan farmer talking to the DEA about poppy fields, right? Like you shouldn't be at risk. Yeah. Um, all right. When we come back, we are going to talk about the state of the progressive movement in Israeli politics. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. On the line, all the way from Tel Aviv, is Yael Patir. She is J Street's Israel director and a Israeli progressive activist. Thank you so much for joining the show. I know it's late over there. Oh, I'm really happy to join. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, uh, as you know, uh, Bibi Netanyahu just won re-election. It's an astounding fifth term in office. Uh, the Likud did very well. They won 36 seats. So now Bibi has to build a coalition with members of other political parties, likely with right-wing and ultra-Orthodox parties to get a majority in the Knesset, but it seems like he's going to be able to do that. The thing we keep hearing is that early reports say that Netanyahu's real goal is building an indictment-proof coalition. What does that mean? Well, basically what it means is that if um, if he's going to go to trial, which is something that we will know in the coming months, he will be able to pass legislation through a coalition that will be committed to passing legislation that would basically protect him from um, losing his seat in case of, a, of an indictment. Uh, he can actually, according to the law today, uh, Netanyahu can, can undergo trial while still being prime minister. He doesn't have to, to leave his post. But if indict, indicted, he has to, but he can change the law in a way that will say, as long as he's sitting prime minister, he can remain in office. Ugh. So, yeah, I, you know, as an American progressive, um, you know, we obviously have been dealing with the, you know, situation of being in the opposition, of, of, of seeing a lot of things we care about um, either discarded or attacked by you know, the government. Uh, and I'm wondering just kind of how you would describe the mood of Israeli civil society, um, certainly the progressive types of activists and organizations you've worked with. Uh, you've also helped promote dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. You know, given this uh, Netanyahu agenda that has now had five uh, you know terms to saturate in Israeli politics, you know, we see the, re- uh, the threat to annex West Bank settlements. We see attacks on uh, media opponents of Netanyahu. We see this effort that you just spoke about to kind of uh, subvert uh, accountability. Um, w- what is this strategy for combating that and for trying to uh, keep alive some of the causes that uh, progressive activists like yourself have, have worked for in Israel? Good question. Um, so, first of all, I mean, I want I want to say, and I've been saying, welcome to the club um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, for the past two years. Are, yeah. It's not it's not a nice club to be in, <laughs> um, but I think the you know the one good good thing about it is that you that American progressives can understand Israeli progressives better mm-hmm. than than they used to, and as somebody who works for an American organization and that gets to talk to a lot of Americans and host them in the region, um, 
there's definitely, I think, more of an understanding both of what we have been facing in these last five terms or, or more so in the last 10 years of Netanyahu, but also about the debates that we have within our camp for how to, to address and how to fight back. Um, and those are evolving, I think, throughout, throughout the years. It's, it's important when looking at the, the results and at our political map to understand um, two things. One is that we have basically three um, groups. If you put aside the, the ultra-Orthodox, we have the, the self-identified right, center and left where um and the center left are bundled together uh, in in a center left block which is the second thing that when looking at the israeli political map you have to look at two blocks uh the center left and the right and if you look at the results of the last election in fact the blocks remain the same so while netanyahu indeed won and he got more seats for his party in fact his block lost two seats and got uh, about uh, 40,000 votes less. Mm -hmm. um, so ju that's just in terms of, of having the numbers and, and thinking about what kind of, um, that it wasn't that big of a win, perhaps, hmm. um, as, some, as some see it. Um, and I think when, 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 um, when looking at what, what we need to do, it's, it's clear that today the, the center alternative is, is the stronger argument that says the, the public is moving to the right and therefore we need to peel off some votes from the right and we need to talk in a language that, that is basically um, looking at, at the center. And that's, and that's what we saw in this big new party that we had in the, in the last election. Indeed, people voted for an alternative to Netanyahu, but it was, it was not, there wasn't any policy there or any ideas. It was just not having Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. And what progressives like me are offering um, is that we're saying we need to put ideas on the table. We need to propose a different vision for Israel and we need to broaden our coalition. And our best chance of broadening the coalition is with the Arab citizens of Israel or the, the Palestinian citizens of Israel that are 20% of the population. And one of the good news out of this election is that um, on on the left, um, the 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 smallest um, Zionist left party, Meretz, actually um, managed to to keep keep its seats and be in the Knesset this round because of of the Arab voters. 30% um, of their vote, which is unprecedented. And it's just a proof that there are opportunities for the left to expand. And they are at the heart of it, I think, is the, is the partnership between um, Israeli Jews and, and Arabs. You're exactly right. I mean, we need to, to look at this in terms of blocks, and that's important in terms of coalition building. But it is interesting to see what's happened to the center-left Labor Party, because it was such a force in Israeli politics for, you know, 50 years. But I don't believe uh, that they've had a, a prime minister since 1999. I believe Labor got like six seats in the Knesset this time around. What's happened to Labor? And, and is there an alternative that progressives are going to instead of Labor, or is the country moving to the right? Like, what, what do you make of it? So exactly as I said, there is, we have a strong center, and, and the center um, 
is is where people are going from from labor because they want an alternative to Netanyahu. And and the center is the is the block today that offers an alternative and and it's clear I think today for everybody definitely after these elections that the the government that will be an alternative to the Netanyahu government will not be formed by labor and it will not be formed by the left as it used to be it will be formed by the center and the center will partner with the left parties and. It has to also partner with the Arab parties in order to be uh, a viable alternative. One, uh, following up on that, Yale, I, I, I know you worked for the Shimon Perez Center, um, and I was with President Obama um, at Shimon Perez's funeral um, in 2016, um, and you couldn't help but feel like the passing of Shimon Perez was also the kind of passing of a certain generation of Israeli leader you know, that Americans had come to know, uh, Perez, Rabin, uh, in a way, Golda Meir, you know, the, the people who built Israel, um, but who also then, uh, after winning the wars, tried to make peace and, and tried to reach out to Palestinians. Um, and, 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 and Netanyahu, in many ways, has been the bridge to a different kind of Israeli politics that has left behind that generation. And, and I'm just wondering where you think the the leadership and the vision is going to come from. We, we've talked about blocks and political strategy, but but you also need leadership and you also need individuals who step forward and and can put, can put forward that type of vision. You know, what is the what comes after the Shimon Perez's of this of, of this world uh, in Israel, <laughs> and, and and how can a leader um, in in Israel of 2019 with the changing demographics and uh, the changing politics? Um, you know, kind of build on the legacy of those Israeli leaders that so many Americans came came to admire that 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 predated Netanyahu. I mean, that's probably you know the, the million dollar question. Um, I, I I will highlight again that that leader will probably be somebody that currently exists or somebody that we don't we don't know of of yet and is going to come out and it probably will will be somebody that comes from the center but he or she will be heavily pushed by uh by the left and by the ideas that the progressives will put forward and it has to be a very clear um it has to be a very clear agenda and it has to provide an an alternative to the to the current we can call it status quo um, separationalist, um, racist uh, regime that that we currently have. Um, there's there's a lot of ideas out there. They're not being pushed by the political leadership because the political leadership is 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 very very weak. And I think that there is a generation that is coming up, and that will be uh, pushing for those ideas. If it's separation of of in in our case synagogue and state. Uh, if it's talking more um, clearly against the occupation, uh, uh, about the price that the Israeli society uh, is paying, about the immoral uh, policies that we have towards Palestinians, um, it's again uh, how to uh, to have equality, how to include the, the, the different minorities that we have, and so on. Um, there were, uh, there's a lot of um, you know messaging and 
stuff that you both know uh, yeah. know uh, are, are experts on 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 how to to package this um, but I think the push will come it's not you know also Shimon Peres in a way was was the man that came with the ideas um, and he was able to push push Rabin to who wasn't where Shimon Peres was but to to follow the policy that that uh, Shimon Peres in a way in a way pushed for and that's the kind of the dynamic that that we need um, in Israeli politics and and I want to also throw the ball into your court and to say that one of the things that has made the rise in Israel so powerful in Netanyahu is the support that he's getting from the U.S. Yeah. Well, and what what do you the massive support? Well, and what so what would you tell you know there are a lot of Democrats and probably a lot of our listeners who are really concerned about the direction in Israel, the potential for an annexation of settlements in the West Bank, essentially the de facto killing off of the two-state solution. Um, what, what, what would you say to Americans, and you, you meet with some of them, about the ways for the U.S. and the Democratic Party in the United States to you know, apply pressure on the Israeli government or to more directly support Palestinian aspirations? Um, what, what's the, the toolbox that you think Americans should be using that, that we have not yet used to, to actually try to uh, push Israel in the direction of, uh, of, of, of ending the occupation and um, uh, uh, enabling the emergence of a Palestinian state? So I would say, first of all, that, you know, still believe the change in Israel comes from within, and there are people in Israel like me and others that are working on that change, and, and we need to be supported. Um, understand that we're working against very strong powers on, on the right that are receiving uh, American support, definitely now from, from the president, who's basically um, allowing Netanyahu to, to uh, promote his vision of killing the possibility of there being a Palestinian state. Um, so look into ways in which that support can be um, uh, can be uh, given politically and in uh, in other ways. This is number one. Number two, and this is something that is happening, and I'm happy to see happening, is that there has to be a, a conversation about the U.S.-Israel relationships. Israel needs to pay a price for the policies that it conducts. Definitely, if they are not within the self-interest of of um, safeguarding uh, a Jewish and democratic state and promoting a two-state solution in the end of the occupation. I can't, you know, give you the exact uh, uh, tools that need that are in that toolbox uh, when it comes to um, both blocking Israeli attempts to, um, to promote annexation, uh, to... Uh, harm uh, Palestinian uh, human rights uh, uh, and so on. Um, or what are the what are the price that Israel that Israel can be uh, that you know Israel will need to pay? But that but there needs to be a conversation about that, and I think that conversation is happening within the Democratic Party, and I encourage it to to happen more. And I. And we need to hear from from democratic candidates uh, what they think about it, and um, 
and expand 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 the possibilities. And it's not something that didn't happen in the past, both with with Democrats and with Republicans, that where there was disagreement between the government and there were different tools to to uh, work through these disagreements. Agreed. Well, Yale, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us today, and. Um Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> keep, no, keep up the good work. We're, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing over here, so we're with you. Me. Yeah, no, we're, I really appreciate it. It's impressive what you do. And I remember uh, you know, meeting with some amazing Israeli progressive organizations that were defending human rights in Israel and trying to hold the government accountable in a very difficult situation. So uh, really admire what you guys are doing. Thank you. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. All right, let's talk some 2020, Ben. Uh, this week, the New Yorker published an interesting piece on Bernie's foreign policy vision. Uh, the piece talks about Yemen, Venezuela, uh, the need to rebalance U.S. support for Iran and Saudi Arabia. I thought that was particularly interesting. Uh, he talks about his contempt for the current political leadership in Israel and in Palestine. Uh, and he also talks about getting tougher on the Israeli government if they continue this rightward drift. But he stopped short of being specific about whether he'd consider withholding military aid or any other punitive steps. But I mean, I guess what I liked about it was Bernie's contempt for the uh, foreign policy establishment. You saw this with Obama. Yeah. Frankly, you see it now with Trump. Um, interestingly, the author, Ben Wallace-Wells, who's really very smart reporter at The New Yorker believes that the major difference between Bernie and Obama's foreign policy vision is that Bernie's more optimistic. I didn't see that coming. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I had to say, like, this piece got me excited about Bernie's foreign policy. He's clearly thinking hard about a lot of important issues, surrounding himself with smart advisors like Matt Duss, who we both know. Yeah. I mean, it was impressive. Yeah, I, th- I <laughs> just say on the optimism point, it we were very optimistic before he came into power. Too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's <laughs> that's something true. about the eight years in the White House that can uh, grind some of the optimism out of you. That's not right. all of it, that's though. Right. I mean, uh, 
the Iran deal is optimistic. Paris Accord is optimistic. Cuba opening Cuba. is optimistic. Um, but I will, what I think what's really telling about this is that if you if you look at the contrast between Bernie's uh, 2016 campaign and 2020 campaign, one of the most striking areas is foreign policy. Like in 2016, it was an afterthought. I mean, Bernie was running to advocate a set of domestic policies that he cared a lot about, you know, healthcare and, and other things. He's done the work. I mean, where Bernie should get some credit is, you know, he brought on Matt Duss, yep. uh, a really talented guy, to be his Senate foreign policy advisor. He's given a series of speeches um, over the last four years on these topics. Uh, he has uh, been a leading force behind the resolution to withdraw U.S. support for the war in Yemen. So we should say this isn't just a guy who, you know, put together a fact sheet running for president. And he has a coherent worldview. And the worldview is that we need to end the forever war. We need to, to terminate the authorizations for this kind of open-ended war. We need to rethink uh, dramatically our relationship with Saudi Arabia and our involvement in Middle Eastern con uh, conflicts. We need to have some humility uh, when it comes to regime change policies um, like the Trump administration is pursuing in Venezuela. Um, you know, and that we need to off offer an alternative vision uh, where we're working with activists around the world to stand up to authoritarianism and to promote you know, democratic uh, values by living them ourselves, right? And you don't need to, to agree with every aspect of Bernie's foreign policy, but but it's it's a it's a clear and coherent worldview um, that would definitively end the chapter, the post nine eleven chapter that we've been in, um, uh, of essentially a, a number of open ended wars uh, in the Middle East and diminish the role of terrorism in our uh, foreign policy uh, and elevate issues like you know climate change and, and other things, and mm -hmm. so. To me, uh, Bernie should at a minimum get some credit for, for having done the work uh, to prepare this flank of his campaign as he as he heads into another election. Yeah, I agree. I think he deserves a lot of credit for, for putting in the work. So does Elizabeth Warren. She's given a, a major yeah, speech where yeah, she talks absolutely. about inequality, but also the nuclear stockpile and also Afghanistan. But let's unpack one of the things that Bernie was talking about, about sort of mm -hmm. getting past the 9-11 era uh, regarding the authorization for the use of military force. So there was a recent hearing uh, where Senator Rand Paul asked the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo if he believes that the 2001 AUMF, that was the thing we passed right after 9-11 that every war has been based on ever since. Uh, uh, Paul pressed them on whether the uh, 01 AUMF gives the Trump administration the authority to declare war with Iran. And uh, frighteningly, Pompeo just, he wouldn't say no. He parsed it. He said, well, there's a legal question about the AUMF that I defer to lawyers, but there's a factual matter about Iran's connections yeah. to al-Qaeda yeah, he really hammered crazy. home. And this yeah. comes on the heels, and Paul mentioned this too, of them uh, designating Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a terrorist organization. So uh, my ears perked up. Rand Paul's ears perked up. I yeah. think we need to watch this pretty closely. Yeah, no, we do. And I've, I've, I've been watching this and been worried about it. Um, and first of all, you know, we tried to unpack this and unwind this in the Obama administration. We tried to get a new AUMF for ISIS uh, that was time-bound and geography-bound, so it wasn't open-ended. Congress didn't want to take that up. Mm -hmm. We would have even repealed and tried to replace the 2001 AUMF uh, if we could have, but Congress had no interest in that. So I'm glad Bernie's raising it. On this question, you've seen Pompeo and Bolton lean into this Al-Qaeda connection, and it has felt for some time like they were beginning to lay a pretext that if we end up in a war with Iran, that the authorization that they will use to make that legal is the 2002 authorization. Do you mean 01? Is Sorry, oh yeah. Now let's step back and just think about how fucking crazy this is. 
we went to war in Iraq, right? In part, now they got an authorization. But remember, these the same people were trying to 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 pump up that war by saying there was a connection between Saddam Hussein oh, yeah. and, and Al Qaeda, which didn't exist, right? The fact that you know we like to use the word trope now in our politics. The fact that this <laughs> Al Qaeda trope, fucking over a decade later, is being used to lay a pretext for war next door to Iraq and Iran is insane, it, and and like speaks to the absolute incapacity of any one of these fuckers to learn a single lesson from Iraq. The only lesson they learn from Iraq is that it works. <laughs> the only lesson that these guys learn from Iraq is to say, oh, what we'll do. Remember, Mohammed Atta was supposed to be meeting with Iraqi intelligence in Prague, no, and they, they're saying this on fucking Sunday shows. Uh, let's not even get into the you know their fixation on Sunday shows and and, and their misinformation and saying that the smoking gun could be a mus- mushroom crowd and yeah. saying that yep. Muhammad Atta is meeting with uh, Iraqi intelligence. Then Special we, aluminum tubes. Aluminum tubes. And now we fast forward and let's just like, first the facts, Iran is a Shia country, right? Right. Well, and uh, let me offer a major data point. Okay, the, the New America think tank went through all these documents that were found in Bin Laden's compound yes. after we waxed him. Yes. <laughs> and they they cast doubt on any close ties or cooperations between Iran and Al Qaeda. We have new evidence that no, suggests is wrong. And, and like uh, the 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 Iranians are, are on the opposite side of this divide in yep. the Islamic world. They are Shia, and Al Qaeda is a Sunni organization. And 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 so for them to be trying to cobble together some relationship between Iran and Al Qaeda mm-hmm. to justify, think about how crazy this would be. Let, think about how crazy this would be. The, the, the original AUMF af- passed after 9-11 was for us to go after Al-Qaeda and associated forces, the people responsible for 9-11. Think about how crazy it would be to go to war with Iran 20 years later. Not a good idea. Saying that what they are an associated force of Al-Qaeda, that the Iranian government is some, like, the, like it's we, all the caveats that we always have to say about Iran being a bad actor and Iran doing bad things. Th- th- this ain't it, chief. You know, like this is not. This is not the the like the. If they if 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 John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump believe that this nation should go to war with Iran, then they have to put forward the reason for that war. Is it the, is it right. is it the Iranian uh, nuclear program? Is it something the Iranians are doing in the region? Let them make that case to Congress and let them get authorization. If they don't, this war is a is illegal. And Congress needs to say that a war that is not authorized by Congress against Iran will be seen as illegal and Congress won't support it. And Congress, frankly, shouldn't fund it. Yeah. And it can't be because some Al-Qaeda guy lived in Iran for a few years or or there was some... Like, some there, there they were do, got, but, Al-Qaeda guys in prison that they released from yes, prison. And so because they released them from prison, they're yeah. uh, an associate of Al-Qaeda. And like you said, the IRGC has has funded all kinds of militia groups in no, Iraq. Hezbo- Hezbollah, been, bad guys. Yeah, they funded yeah. Hezbollah, right? There's been all sorts of militia but groups. But make Most that of them case. are Shia, right? Make that case. They're not Al-Qaeda. Don't do this legal gymnastics here. It yeah. is. It was great. To, I, credit to Rand Paul for, for calling out this bullshit. Yeah, because you could see this bullshit coming a mile away and, and everybody should pay attention to this. And Congress, yep. Democrats in Congress should say right now that, that if a war is not authorized by Congress with Iran, then it's an illegal war. Agreed. Um, switching gears a little bit. So the Times had this piece this week that caught my eye about the FBI preventing Chinese scholars from visiting the U.S. because of concerns over spying. Now, again, obviously, we all know that, that China's real threat when it comes to espionage. They're especially bad about stealing intellectual property. So I'm not minimizing the risk here, but the, this policy seemed completely self-defeating because a lot of the scholars in this piece were described as people who who care about the U.S., who understand U.S. values, and they can go back and explain U.S. thinking to the Chinese government and maybe prevent misunderstandings. Because, you know, you do worry about an entire generation of young 
uh, Chinese you know, military members, for example, who think we are this distant evil empire and, and have no you know, actual firsthand understanding of what's going on. Um, ben, you worked on a ton of these cultural student academic exchange programs at the White House. Like, why was that such an important tool to, to forging better relations between us? Other countries. Well, the, the the first point is that in any foreign exchange program, when we're bringing foreigners here to the United States, either on a U.S. government program, you know, or on a university exchange, like some of these people are going to end up being like the prime ministers of countries, diplomats for countries, business leaders in countries. We've benefited for decades from the fact that a lot of the people who ran a lot of the other countries in the world and businesses had studied here and mm-hmm. had relationships here and had goodwill built up from their time here. And, and that proved to be a huge intangible asset for our foreign policy. And I often used to think in the Obama administration, as these people would cycle through, this could end up being like the most important thing we do, you know, because if we're helping to uh, expose uh, young people to democratic values mm-hmm. and to relationships with ordinary Americans, uh, this could pay dividends for decades to come as these people move up the ladders in their own society, right? That's that's the the, the most obvious point to me. Second, there's frankly just an economic benefit, you know, of having yep. students come here, uh, of having exchange students come here. That's all money coming into our economy and money coming to our universities. Uh, that's that's making us better. Sometimes we're getting the, the best and brightest from these countries doing research in the United States. And I'll tell you the two things that worry me, if we cut this off, you know, you know where that's going to go. It's going to go to China, right? And you already see this in other parts of the world. More and more foreign students are not coming to the United States because they're scared of Steve Miller and they're going to China instead. Do we really want to see the next generation of leaders from Africa and Latin America and Europe studying in China? And just think about how that's going to color their worldview and just think about how that's going to color their orientation. We could be like playing ourselves out of the superpower game here by shutting the door to people. And on the China specific piece, you know, look, if someone's here and we have reason to believe they're spying, sure, kick kick them out. But if we just start saying we don't want certain types of people here doing certain types of work, that's a very slippery slope. Yeah. Because suddenly, you know, you're going to have researchers who don't want to come here. You're going to have Chinese who don't want to come here. You're going to have a sorting out of who can come to the United States and who can go to China. You see the Chinese already uh, reciprocating, kicking out, you know, U.S. business people potentially, just like they've been detaining Canadians after we detained the Huawei person. And we could end up in a a real Cold War situation where essentially we're tearing down the bridges between our societies that are necessary to avoid conflict. Uh, And that's going to make the next 20 or 30 years a much more dangerous thing. So this may seem like a small story, but if this is really our approach and our orientation to both China and to kind of foreign uh, exchanges generally, uh, we're going to, we're going to disarm ourselves from like our most uh, profound source of influence, which is our own example. Yeah. Small story here. I'm sure it's front page news. The U S is just booting out a bunch of tweed jacket wearing, you know, fuzzy friendly academics, you know, and again, if that's the way they'll spin it. And if one of these academics is a spy, then kick him out, you know, but you don't just kind of do it, uh, you know, writ large and mess. Uh, last question for you. And it's the most open end one of the day. So we got a bunch of major elections Mm -hmm. coming up this year. Uh, India votes in April and in May because it takes like five weeks to deal with 900 million voters, which is just a crazy thing to even imagine how they even conduct elections. Um, Indonesia votes the day this pod is released. Afghanistan goes to the polls on April 20th. Anything you're worried about watching for makes you hopeful? Well, I think the general point is that We've talked about this contest in the world between authoritarianism and democracy, and there are a number of elections this year that will put some of this to the test. In Indonesia, you have a relatively 
democratic and, and non-corrupt leader running for re-election against kind of a military guy who represents kind of the older corrupt establishment. It looks like the current president, Jokowi, is likely to win. I think that's generally a good thing. But we should watch. This is the world's largest Muslim-majority country, over 200 million people. Uh, we want it to continue to evolve into a more uh, stable democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, India, Modi has practiced this you know, fairly hardline brand of Hindu nationalist politics. Um, he won an outright majority last time. You know, even if he doesn't uh, lose this election, I think it would be healthy for there to be more competition within India so that it doesn't look like there's just this kind of growing Hindu nationalist movement that is overtaking the country's politics. So I think the important thing to watch in India is not just whether or not Modi wins, but how much he wins by and whether it feels like there's a competitive democracy in India. Because mm-hmm. we want that in a country of yeah. over a billion people. We don't want to see it kind of drift in a hardline direction, in a nationalist direction like a lot of other countries are. Um, Canada, we have one later this year where Trudeau has been in trouble. Um, if for all the flaws exposed in the recent scandal, I still think losing one of the world's few remaining progressive leaders in the West, at least, um, to a pretty hardline right-wing Canadian party that is kind of against action on climate change, that would be bad. Yeah. Um, so I think Canada is a good litmus test as well. And then lastly, Afghanistan. You know, Tommy, we've been through the last two Af- Afghanistan elections. Um, were hugely destabilizing. Uh, yeah. The 2009 one, in which it was massive amounts of fraud, led to violence, uh, diminished Karzai. The last one, in which neither side uh, really accepted that the other side had lost, um, and we had to kind of broker a unity government. People should watch this election, because if this election in Afghanistan goes off the rails, at the same time that the administration is trying to negotiate something with the Taliban, you could see things really fall apart in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, so what we should be rooting for there is just a clear result um, that that doesn't throw the country into even further chaos. Yeah. If you if you had a, a contested election results and then a, you know a declining security situation, it makes the peace talks harder. Mm-hmm. It makes getting our guys out of there harder. It's uh, it's a mess. And then in Canada, I mean, the yeah. other thing I've been I've been watching is. You know, the Canadian right has been increasingly yes. flirting with the same alt-right yes. forces that we have had to deal with for the last couple of years here. And it's uh, it's a real problem. Yeah. It's a real problem. They don't have Fox News up there, so that's a good start. But, I mean, there's plenty of bad news. No, I think people should keep an eye on Canada. We tend to think of it as our more rational, you know, cousin to the north. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're 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 mild-mannered and, and they're friendly. And, and they are. They're lovely people, the Canadians. Um but the right wing in Canada is in bed with some of the same forces that we've seen sloshing around in the U.S. and the U.K. with Brexit. You know, you see um, like a more aggressive right wing media. You see more aggressive resistance to action against climate change. Uh, you see kind of a more personalized, nasty brand of politics emanating from the right there. So, you know, I, I, a victory for the right in Canada would kind of send a message yeah, <laughs> that yeah. progressive politics is in the retreat everywhere, you know, even in the the North. Um, um, so that that's, that's worth watching. And, yeah. and our world is in Canada, you know, need to, need to not be complacent in this election. Trouble in Westeros. We need the North to stay stable. Um, okay. When we come back, I'll have my conversation about Afghanistan and Bo Bergdahl with author Matt Farwell. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, 
a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. This is a special day for me because I get to welcome my friend Matt Farwell to Crooked Media HQ. You just met the dog. I did. Met my puppy. Uh, he is the author of a new book, American Cipher, which chronicles the story of Bo Bergdahl, who was held captive by the Taliban for five years. Uh, I, but it also really tells the broader story of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Uh, and it is a fantastic book. I highly recommend you buy it. And you read it if you want to understand what actually happened, because uh, there's a lot of bad information out there. Matt, it's great to have you. Thank you. And thanks for the kind words about the book. Really I appreciate mean, that. Well, it's true. I mean, first of all, the war has been going on for so long that it's easy to forget the history. Uh, yeah. For example, we used to arm and fund the guys we're now fighting. So that's not great. It's blowback. You know, <laughs> I mean, we know it happens. We just do it. Yeah, you know? We, know, we know it happens. Uh, we could have ended the war before it started because the Taliban made us a peace offer in 2001. You chronicle right. all of this. And second, I mean, the reporting about Bo Bergdahl has been so egregiously wrong that, like, I worked on this issue in the White House, and I barely knew the full story until I read your book. Well, I mean, the reporting and the story was buried under many, many layers of bullshit. Yeah, and lies. Yeah. So, um, first question for you. So, you are, uh, I think, also a uniquely credible person to tell this story because you actually served in Afghanistan. I believe you may have served in the same province as, as Bo Bergdahl. Yeah, I knew Yayakel and Mest fairly well. You knew, so the, the those are the The, the places where Bergdahl walked off from. Yeah. And so when you hear about that, you're like, nobody walks off from that place. Like, that dude must have been crazy. To be just walk off in the middle of nowhere. Well, so It's not really in the middle of nowhere, though, because it's around a lot of kind of towns where you know there's a lot of Taliban activity. Not like. You know, so safe towns. So uh, let's just start like with your your service in the army. Like, how how long were you in Afghanistan, and what did you do? So I joined the army. I dropped out of college, joined the army in two thousand five, deployed to Afghanistan as an infantryman with the Tenth Mountain Division, two eight seven Catamounts, uh, in two thousand six. Was there for initially a twelve month tour. We got extended for four months on the that's, last day. That's nice of them. So we were there for like 16 months. They extended you on the last day? Dude, some of our guys were back in Fort Drum. Like Alpha Company had got back to Fort Drum. The wives, when the rear detachment commander, the wives and spouses, about rioted. He had to have MPs with them. Like it was not, yeah. <sighs> because he's doing foot patrols in Afghanistan is not a hard enough job. You have to uh, completely jerk uh, a bunch of people around and send them there for another four months. Well, I mean, it's important to wage counterinsurgency. Or <laughs> so. All right. Let's start with a basic question that is a complicated answer. So who is Bo Bergdahl and why did he walk off his, his post in Afghanistan? Okay. So Bo Bergdahl is a infantryman in 1st of the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment, uh, 
which was in Afghanistan as Task Force Geronimo. And he's kind of a everyman character, like a dude from Idaho, Mm -hmm. from kind of a wealthy, like, resort town, but he's a local, a townie. So uh, sort of, you know, everyday dude. He's a little bit weird, Mm -hmm. a little bit strange. But anybody who joins the infantry, I mean, you know, (laughs) is a little bit strange, a little bit weird, right? Like, so one day, June 30th, 2009, he's been in Afghanistan for about five weeks, and he's just like, this sucks, I've had it. And he walks off. So that triggers something called a dust one. Right. Can you explain what that means? That's a duty status whereabouts unknown. A military acronym. The military has tons of acronyms. We're going to try and avoid as many of them <laughs> as possible. I've been out of the army for like nine years now. I've forgotten quite a few, which good. is good. It's hard. They really drill them into yeah, your I head. Bet, I bet. But uh, it's basically, you know, an amber alert in a war zone. Okay. It's somebody's gone. We got to find this guy. And so that, in reading the book, I was amazed at how much that one word means in terms right. of resources redeployed to one area of the country in terms of a bunch of soldiers suddenly doing far more high tempo searches and foot patrols for someone. Right. I mean, it feels right. like it entirely shifts the focus of a, the war effort. It does. And it doesn't. Right. Because what it does is it creates an unimaginably good pretext to do whatever the hell you want. Right. Right. It is the, you know, hey, I think I smell weed, kind of excuse. We think there's an American in there. You can pay an informant in Afghanistan money and he'll tell you anything, right? So it becomes the excuse to do a more aggressive counterinsurgency like by killing everybody strategy that both McChrystal and Flynn wanted to execute but sort of couldn't because they were constrained by policy Mm -hmm. right so it means you can kick down doors faster you can shoot a little easier yeah you don't have to put an afghan face on everything because you're trying to find an american you know no big deal you know he's probably in pakistan within 48 hours but you can stretch that out for a while because you're really not sure you know yeah you don't know exactly well so I, i wanted to ask you about that because so Bo walks off his base um, for reasons that were confusing. I mean, I think he was incredibly naive. I think there were leadership challenges at, at the base he was at, and he wanted to walk to the next base over and re- report on the people who were, he thought, putting his friends at risk or something, right? Right. And, I mean, guys in his unit had already gone to their first sergeant, gone to their chain of command and said, hey, there might be something off of this guy. I know before my unit deployed to Afghanistan, we put a guy out for mental health reasons. Really? Yeah, because you don't really like want to be sitting in a gun truck with a dude with an automatic weapon behind you. Right. That's like got some issues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beyond the issues, we all have to join the infantry in the first place, right? <laughs> right. You want that, but and, and you um and you guys, you know, in the book, you talked about how the military ultimately determined that uh, Bergdahl had some mental health issues. I mean, he had right. washed out of the Coast Guard and right. then re-enlisted in the Army. But, it, you know, after his, we'll get into his five years in captivity, but when he finally got home, they took a look at him and it sounded like he had some some mental health issues that should probably kept him out. Yeah, it probably should have been disqualifying. Yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, regardless, he walks off, there's this massive manhunt that we talked about, the Dust One. Um, and, you know... 
I think a lot of people who were involved in the search for him were furious, incredibly frustrated, right? I mean, they were forced to search for him. Um, justifiably so. Justifiably too. so. I mean, if you're a service member who, you know, they, there are U.S. service members who feel like their friends were killed or wounded because they had to search for Bo. Is that, is that accurate in your opinion? I mean, is it accurate that there are people who feel that their friends were killed and wounded because they had to search for Bo? That's accurate. Yeah. Is it accurate that people were like killed searching for Bo directly? No. No. Right? There was no mission that was a direct like go find Bo or go recover Bo where that was the number one thing on the like intelligence priorities list. It was just sort right? of like underpinning everything it's they did. It's just tacked on, man. It's it's like stateside an easy way to get a warrant, right? We think yeah. this, you know, person might be here. And and you kind of walk through in the book how most people who understood how kidnapping for ransom works or the Taliban works knew that they would move him as fast as humanly possible from Afghanistan across yeah. the border yeah. to Pakistan. Um, and that the the chain of command basically knew he'd been moved from Afghanistan to Pakistan within a few days, but continued this up-tempo search anyway, even though it might have been more dangerous to the guys doing the searching, even though uh, it might have been enraging to the Afghan population that we were right. trying to win over. Um, well, that's the key question is maybe you want to enrage and terrify the Afghan population. Why? Do you, so what, what do you make of the decision? I mean, is it just that when you have a guy missing, you have to just do everything you possibly can to find him, even if it... Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it, right? Like, that's a big part of the soldierly myth, like mythos, a big part of, like, what we're trained, what we're, like, you know, kind of programmed to do. It's mm-hmm. it's hard for us to, like, leave a dude behind, yeah. right? Like, right. almost impossible. For And, but, and, and that is totally understandable for you. But if you're a four-star general that is making decisions about the course of the entire war and you have intelligence that says, look, these these searches are ultimately... 99% likely to be futile. Do you, but what else are they yielding? Yeah. Because, I mean, you're searching places that you know are, I mean, I know in that grid square cluster where they would be searching, there were hideouts for sub-governor, like shadow sub-governor and governor level folks, right? So you are kind of taking the fight to the Taliban and Haqqani infrastructure in the country. You're doing what the hardcore like killers want to do, Right. And you have the perfect pretext for doing it. Right, right. Um, so when Bo was gone, uh, there quickly cropped up a whole bunch of rumors about why he might have walked off. Right. Um, now, it, it's important. I didn't realize until I read the book that a lot of the guys who were asked to search for him had to sign essentially non-disclosure agreements. Oh, yeah. They weren't allowed to talk about it. No, yet. and they were they were scared to talk about it when Hastings and I did the um, – Rolling Stone article in 2012. Yeah, you and Michael Hastings worked on a piece back in the day uh, uh, about Bo Bergdahl. But so, but early on, like there was this, there were reports that popped up that said he was a Bo was a Taliban sympathizer, or maybe he left to go join the Taliban. Right. Um, is there any evidence for that? Is there any evidence for the claim uh, Mike Flynn made, who listeners of the show probably know best as Trump's disgraced former national security advisor, but at the time was a top military intelligence official. He was a man on the make. He yeah. was about to become DIA director. He was about to become the, the, the boss boss. He told a reporter in 2009 that Bo was a jihadi. Was, was there any right. evidence of that? No. 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 No, I mean, there were, you know, anyone will sell a story, right? So I'm sure there was a story sold up the chain somewhere. But any credible evidence? No. no. None of the people we talked to that 
had access to those sorts of things or that, you know, really seemed to know about it, believe that to be the case. Yeah. Including his debriefers, including the military that like kind of threw the book at him. Mm-hmm. You know, if they could have if they could have thrown any of that stuff at him, you better believe they would have. Yeah. Before we I want to get into like how we got Bo back. But before we do, I do think it's worth just a little bit of get a sense for how he was treated in captivity because he was put through hell. I mean, right. the, the Pentagon's Joint Personnel Recovery Agency uh, divided into three categories. There was torture, abuse, and neglect. Can you give us kind of, a, without being too morbid, I guess, an overview of that treatment? No, I mean, and it's important to like not be like not be crass about the violence that was inflicted upon a human being, yeah. right? But, I mean, he was tortured. He was whipped. Right. He was left in isolation. He was he had physical illness, diarrhea pretty much the whole time. So imagine there were all sorts of horrible, horrible things. And mostly, I mean, he was alone. Yeah. And when you look at any of the studies, and I looked at all the POW studies, captivity and isolation is the hardest thing to deal with. I mean, you think about mm-hmm. the the debate that we have back in the States about solitary confinement. Yeah. Right. And then you think about solitary confinement in a cage that you're chained to while you're shitting yourself constantly. And the only time people are coming in, they're being mean to you. Yeah. Right? And they're, they're you're not getting you. adequate food. Yeah. Like, you don't know if anyone's coming. You don't know what time it is. You don't know what day it is. It's hard for you to track movements of the sun. You are living mostly inside your mind. You're talking to God because if you're talking to God, you're not crazy. Right? So that's five. And that's a quote from Bo. Five years of his life. Yeah. That's a hard thing to like decompress from in any sort of normal state and then to come back and be put on display the way that he was. I mean, that's a whole other thing to recover from, you know? Yeah. Well, so let's get into how we got Bo back. Um, I started working on this issue in the White House when I was the MSC in, in 2012 because getting Bo back became a part of our efforts to start peace negotiations with the right. Taliban. So basically, we structured a series of these confident buildings tests to see if the other party could deliver, to see if we could build trust. Basically, they were the Taliban could open an office and cutter from which to negotiate. They would return Bo Bergdahl, and in, in exchange, we would send five aging Taliban guys from Gitmo back to— Ooh, I mean, really, like, they've been— Three of them had already surrendered to the Americans and were somewhat working with them in the same way the same dudes that we let run the country were working with us, you know, Dostum mm-hmm. and guys like that. Yeah. So, yeah, they're Taliban, but who made them Taliban, right? We kind of threw them in jumpsuits and threw them in prison for that much right. know, time. So, and I want to get into those what those guys are ultimately doing in a little bit. But yeah. so, those confidence steps like trading Bo, sending those five guys from Gitmo back— were, were seen as a way to get to a bigger peace agreement right. discussion. Ultimately, those talks blew up for a variety of reasons, including <laughs> the fact that— Hardliners on both sides that really didn't want talks. They just yeah, wanted to fight. Right, that's right. I mean, the, the Afghan president, Hami Karzai, was tough to deal with. So, and look, part of, the, part of the, what I would <laughs> that's do— That's a generous way to yeah, generous put way. it, yeah. But part of the thing that I was always asked to do was, you know, we were trying to keep the negotiations around Bo out of the American press because— there was a sense that if, you know, hardliners in the Taliban knew that he was part of a big peace deal, that they might then be more incentivized to kill him. I realized that in hindsight, after reading the book, that's naive. They all knew damn well what was going on. Right. It was to keep mistakes 
quiet and to keep a happy face on a war nobody really gave a shit about and they could kind of keep going without having any sort of public repercussions. And POW creates pretty emotional resonance in the States, you know? Yeah. Well, so, look, I, I, but but just to be clear, that wasn't why I was making those no, calls. No, I know. I, I, we, I, we were like, in good faith trying to get I didn't even know he'd walked off his base for a long time I just no one told me he had I didn't give a shit I thought we were just trying to get our guy back yeah it was it was a strange set of information pipelines yes agreed on that one but so okay fast forward to 2014 the 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 broader peace deal blows up but in 2014 the White House decides to go ahead with the prisoner exchange anyway right despite the sort of broader context so uh we Get Bo back, you know, the a helicopter lands in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. Right. He is rushed into the thing. The exchange occurs. Um, it immediately becomes politicized. Like, w- why do you think public opinion changed so quickly? Because initially there was a lot of support for getting Bo back, right? Yeah, right. Initially it was, you know, kind of an easy issue to be like, hey, why isn't the White House talking about this more? It was an issue for Republicans to hammer Obama on. Yeah. And they kept a plan in the works to, for any time Bo got back to make it his, we had the quote in the Rolling Stone piece, his Willie Horton moment, mm-hmm. right? To really, and it was a unique opportunity to use an American soldier who normally, you know, the American public has been so trained to genuflect before, right, in their image. And to use an American soldier as a, like, almost offensive device, right? And to make this guy the villain. Because at this point, too, the war is not going super well. It's been going on for a long time. You know, if you want to talk about the war, you're generally talking about leaving. And the way you want to talk about leaving is by making it seem as bad as possible. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, every time I worked on this, I just thought that it would be seen as good news to get our guy home. I, not it was, an, am- it was a, an amazing and impressive, like, but F, like, like, PR campaign to make sure that it wasn't. Right. I mean, I guess I just, but I'm just stunned to this day and maybe naively by how viciously regular human beings, people treated Bo Bergdahl, his family, random businesses in the town were getting death threats. I mean, did that shock you at all? I mean, by that point, you know, it was kind of hard to shock me. I've been through some shit like, but yeah, it, it was surprising how quickly pe- people could pivot and vilify someone that normally, you know, they stand up for at football games and clap for yeah. before going back and totally forgetting the wars going on. Yeah. I mean, like, and I mean, one of the guys that really helped orchestrate that campaign is now the ambassador to Germany. Yeah. That's you know? a good point. I mean, very skilled at what he does. So to, to explain what that means. So the Rick Grinnell, who we've talked about on the show a bunch, he was a, a walking, breathing Twitter troll. Um, had a PR company, and what he did was he got a bunch of guys who used to serve with Bo uh, connected with reporters and booked them on Fox News. Now, like, again, that is their right. If the guys no, who and, searched for Bo are pissed at him, yeah, they should say whatever the hell they think. But it was orchestrated. It was orchestrated, and it was, you know, again, a PR campaign where he knew what he was doing. He knew how to frame the thing. We talked to some of the guys that went on those programs and did that stuff. They were unprepared for what they were doing. But they said their piece. If I were them, I would be pissed too. I yeah. am sort of still pissed that a dude walked off from his guys. Like, as a soldier, that offends me. Yeah. Right? Like, that's an offensive proposition. It's not like, it doesn't like wound me to the core, but it, 
you know, offends my sense of professionalism, too, that his leadership didn't prevent that, right? right? So this whole sad, like, book is a litany of failures from, you know, the top to the bottom. Yeah, right. Um, one thing that you, you go through in the book, and I was not in the White House at the time when this happened, was, you know, there had been a more low-key plan, I think, for how to tell the press that Bo had gotten home. Um, right. Uh, Bo's parents happened to be in Washington, D.C. when it happened. So they were invited to the White House. Right. And then Obama asked them if they wanted to come out to a Rose Garden press conference where uh, Bob Bergdahl was asked to speak. And then things quickly went south. What, what, what did, like, I, I don't want to blame Bob or, or his wife in any way, but I think the White House decision to have a, a Rose Garden press event and to have them speak may have ultimately you know, made things worse. I mean, first, it's just not super sensitive to a traumatized family, right? Or to reintegration efforts to like put people on display like that, right? So just from it's a basic failure of humanity at you know the the whole deal. But it's also kind of an easy political win if you can do it right, right? They didn't do it right, and it became a massive political loss. Yeah, I mean, I think I think their sense was, I don't know, I, I think it was like let these. This is a maybe maybe people will view this in human terms instead of political terms if you see the faces of family members who are just so happy to have their kid home. But in fact, the opposite happened. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there are all sorts of ways you can like pin blame or, you know, pin responsibility or, you know, say X, Y, or Z should have done this, that, or the other things. But it's sort of the perfect, like, ending to that part of the story, right? Because the whole story has been defined by, well, if there are three choices, one's right, one's wrong, and one's really wrong, we'll make the really wrong one, (laughs) right? And so that turns out to be the really wrong choice for a variety of reasons, right? Um, So Bo gets home and essentially he goes on trial, right? And the military starts to prosecute him. He goes on trial while at the same time going through really intensive debriefings and reintegration, like prisoner of war therapy, which is down in San Antonio um, at Fort Sam Houston, you know, very sophisticated program that the U.S. has developed for all detainees coming back, like returning hostages, POWs, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and then, you know, every once in a while, getting on a Southwest Airlines flight and flying from San Antonio to Raleigh-Durham with his bodyguards, but on a uniform, going into a courtroom, sitting there, up in the chair like this, with his jaw clenching, as people debate the worst moments in his life. Yeah. And over and over and over. Over and over and over. Yeah. And so you just just reliving that trauma day after day. Um, Must have been really not super fun. No. no. You know? And you talk about in the book how actually, and this surprised me, that the intelligence that uh, the U.S. was able to gather based on his debriefings was really valuable. How did he have in, in, how did he learn valuable things being stuck in a cage for five years? Okay, so Bo was held by the Hakani Network, right? Which is a kind of armed mafioso crime syndicate uh, smuggling network that does off-the-books hits for Pakistani intelligence, right? They used to work for us in the 80s. You know, they're well-trained. You got a new boss. Yeah, you got a new boss. Um, and so he lived in various prisons that they had, various, like, 
you know, safe houses. Mm -hmm. So he could map out some of those networks. Think of, you know, that movie Sneakers, mm -hmm. right? Where they kidnap Robert Redford and he kind of figures out where he is by the patterns and yeah, the bridge. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he heard ducks quacking or whatever. Yeah, was and, and Bo is, Bo's highly intelligent. He's very smart, right? And when he trains his attention on something, he goes for it, right? So as a hostage, he kind of made the decision, well, I'll learn as much as I can about these guys so I could be helpful. That's amazing. I just wouldn't yeah. think that you would be able to, I mean, did he, did he know any of the language they were speaking? Did they speak English he, to him ever? Not, they spoke English to him when they were trying to get either, you know, they very quickly determined he didn't really have any intelligence to right. give, right? He's a low ranking soldier. Yeah. I was that rank in Afghanistan. You don't know anything, right? <laughs> like, you know, you're going out on patrol. It's going to suck. And like, <laughs> you know, you're probably good. All right, we'll get back and like, you know maybe, maybe be able to, like, use a real toilet. That'd be cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something else but I didn't get to do. Um, so, in the midst of this trial, uh, Bo becomes, he gets connected with Mark Bull, who's a, who's did The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty right. and some other films, and, and they do a bunch of hours of conversations. Mm -hmm. And then Mark Bull makes a deal with Sarah Koenig who is the the host of Serial, and Bo's story becomes the subject of, of season two of Serial. Right. You were not a huge fan of that decision, correct? I mean, I understand why that decision was made by, you know, pretty much everybody, but it didn't seem to really work out for anybody. So why? Uh, well, for Bo, because he, uh, on the first episode of Serial, self-incriminated and admitted to what he had done and gave kind of a crazy reason for doing it, that he wanted to be like Jason Bourne. Uh Right before General Robert Abrams was set to make the decision on what kind of court martial, essentially the military difference between like traffic court and like criminal court, mm -hmm. right? What sort of trial he's going to get? Well, the general hears that, of course. And you decide, all right, you know, I almost have to like throw the book at this guy to preserve morale among the ranks, right? And that was part of the feeling in the military, even if. You know, among some of the senior leadership that we were able to see beyond uh, some of the issues and some of the junior leadership as well. A lot of people, you know, a lot of smart people in the military that, you know, even if Bo doesn't deserve this as a person, he deserves this as a symbol. Right. Right. Like, so we have to do this, even though it's kind of a bummer that we have to do this. Yeah. So they throw the book at him. Um you know that that process is ongoing. Ultimately, he 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 gets a sentence. Um, he pleads guilty. He pleads guilty. Pleads guilty. In an eleventh hour, eleventh hour guilty plea. Change of heart. Why do you think he changed his plea? I don't know. Uh, like many things, Bo Bergdahl related, it's an enigma. Yeah. Is this? I think. I think he probably was like, you know what? I've had it. I did walk off. Like I was. AWOL for those hours because he pled guilty to desertion for a very limited portion of time, right? It was basically the time that he walked off from OP Mest to the time he first got picked up by the Taliban dudes with automatic weapons and motorcycles, mm -hmm. right? That started selling them up the chain. So, I mean, I don't know. When my unit got back from Afghanistan, we had quite a few guys go AWOL, right? Like, AWOL's, yeah, all right, it happens. In a combat zone, it's insane that it happens, mm -hmm. right? But- you know, if he didn't have the intent to just say, like, peace out, guys, I'm out of the army, right? That's sort of a different deal. Got it. Yeah. Um, so uh, when when the exchange was made to transfer the, the Taliban guys and Gitmo for Bo, 
people like you know McCain and Lindsey Graham. We mentioned this earlier. They, they acted like these guys were were Rambo and Bin Laden rolled into one. Um, well, a general named John Kelly was in charge of Southcom at the time, and he was really upset about the decision. He, he was upset about it. Now it turns out that those five guys are part of the Taliban team trying to negotiate a peace agreement with us. That makes my head explode. <laughs> I mean, but if you just view history, right, with kind of an open eye to it, Nelson Mandela was put in prison by the South Africans as a terrorist based on information provided by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, right? And then later came out to broker a peace, right? I'm not in any way, shape, or form comparing these guys. Connecting some dots here, Farwell. But I'm saying that, you know, I don't necessarily think dudes that have been in prison for a long time can't be peacemakers, right? I agree. I just, it, it makes me, the cravenness of those comments from McCain and Graham and, and those who demagogue this drives me nuts. I mean, I just, I have no confidence in politicians of any stripe, of any, uh, you know, on any side of the aisle at this point, honestly. Fair and it, it's sort of depressing. Sort of. You know, Super I mean, depressing. yeah, it's kind of depressing. So one of the things the books gets into uh, is how unfortunately shitty that the U.S. has been to detainees uh, in their families right. in the past and, and, and until pretty recently. Um, I mean, if there's one good thing that maybe comes out of Bo's story, it's that it, I think it helps spur some some changes, right? I mean, I would hope so, you know? And I think in a lot of ways during Bo's captivity, his family was treated quite respectfully even while they were kind of led around a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, like you can say what you want about the Pentagon, but they provided access to Bob, right? They, they provided him with the feeling that he had been heard. Mm -hmm. And in return for that, they got some, like, they were able to restrain some of Bob's impulses, like to fly to Peshawar and be like, Hey, I'm that dude that you're holding hostages. Father, yep. like trade me for him. How about that? Bob Let him being, go. Bobby, Bob Bergdahl, both yeah, father who, who literally wanted to go and try to, who tried himself. to. Yeah. Got talked out of it G at the did, last minute. Did General Mattis fly to his home? Uh, yeah. In Idaho? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not like you can't get Pentagon flights out to Sun Valley pretty easily. They do a lot of training out there. Sure. But I have to say, that speaks pretty well of General Mattis. Yeah. That he I was mean, and, the head of CENTCOM at the time and jumped on a plane. And Bob and General Mattis got along quite well. So you and I met in like 2013 or 2014, I think. 2013. You yeah. had been working with Michael Hastings on a story, I think it was a profile of John Brennan. Correct. Uh, until he tragically passed away in a car accident. Correct. Do you want to just... Tell people about Michael Hastings, what he meant to you, because, you know, he was a hell of a good journalist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I dedicated this book to Michael Hastings. He got me started on this path. He took a guy that was kind of fresh out of the army, like in a super self-destructive mode. You, you met me at a time when I was like slamming back beers. And, you know, he, we talked about, you know, we got in contact after his book, The Operators, came out, which I thought was hilarious. And I knew some of the players involved in that. It's about McChrystal and his team. and Yeah, and about just how, like, arrogant they were, you know, which is ultimately a lot of the problem in American foreign policy and military culture in the past, you know, or foreign policy culture in the past while. It's just arrogance, right? Yeah, he meant a lot to me. Uh, got me started on this. And uh, when he died, it was really hard so yeah. you met me in the like aftermath of that well you you were dealing with that 
And you would also, I mean, upon returning home, you would you had been battling with with PTSD or a stress injury for right. seven years. Um, yeah. Fairly recently, you wrote an incredible piece. Was it for Playboy? Yeah. Playboy. Yeah. About something called the God Shot. What's yeah. the God Shot? That was an injection of lidocaine and bivocaine uh, into my neck, like by the spinal column, that trimmed away the stellate ganglion, like basically the nerve cells that build up around uh, your brainstem in response to trauma. So I'm over in Afghanistan for 16 months, right? Mm-hmm. If I hear a gunshot, I react to it, yeah. right? I If I heard a car backfiring back in the States, like I've been known to like push people down, like, you know, get down myself, all the like, all that stuff. So I went <laughs> up, I had stopped drinking about a month before I went up, got this shot. And my dad, who's an old enlisted submarine sailor, we were up in Chicago. So the day after I got the shot, he had to kind of observe me and make sure I was okay. We went to where they have a submarine in the museum. You know, it's like clanging metal and like lights and confined area and people. Basically all the like big PTSI, like stress, right. you know, points, right. right? And we're about halfway through the tour and my dad's like, you notice that you're not like stressing out? And I started sleeping better, you know. So my life kind of like, and then I got the contract to write this book. And so in a lot of ways, like, you know, I've been, I've been on the Bergdahl story since it happened. Right. Right. And it's been a hell of a journey, but like, it's gotten me to a really nice place. It's gotten me in this room, like, you know, talking to nice people. (laughs) Right. Like, Uh, I can't complain. What it got you was, uh. A hell of a good book. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate uh, that. I think you are able to tell it uh, from experience, but uh, you still keep your empathy for everybody involved somehow. I mean, it's in a story where there was no empathy for anyone for a very long time in the national media. But we've we've elevated all these things to be such symbols that we forget that like people are behind it, right? Yeah. And like it can be hard, even like even in those jobs, right? Like when you were in the White House, when I was in the military, it's hard to like remember like that there are humans behind all of this, right? And I I was at a bookstore in Tulsa doing a reading uh, the other day and I got a question about like, you know, does the U.S. know we're like at war in, um, uh, in Afghanistan? And I'm like, well, you know, Maybe people in the U.S. don't, but people in Afghanistan do. Yeah. People in Syria know we're at war. People right. in Iraq. Right. Yeah. Uh, Matt Farwell, great to see you, man. Thank you. Congrats on the book. Thank you very much. Uh, everyone should go out and buy American Cipher. Yeah, please do. It would really help. Get them Let while me write hot. another book. Get them while you so, still can. Do it. I'll, they're flying off the shelves. And I draw really good pictures. Yeah, he'll draw so. you a D.I. Joe if you uh, see him in person. I will. That's it for Pod Save the World this week. Thank you guys all for tuning in and uh, catch you next week. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I 
probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.